Hey everyone, welcome to The Totally Well Show. I'm your host, Joyce Strong. The Totally Well Show is a place where we get curious, ask questions, and explore everything to do with health, wellness, fitness, personal development, helping people, and all the things it takes to help you live a strong, joyous life. My guest today is Beth Surath, an expert at helping people navigate the caregiving of a loved one, um, particularly at end of life, but it really is relevant in all areas of transitions and times in life and is uh, has some great things that she offers on her website as free downloads and um, sort of uh, it, it packets to help guide you uh, to get you started. Um, so I do recommend that you reach out to her. She, she um, in our show today, will give you some other tips and resources. Um, I really appreciated learning from Beth today. And uh, she's also a guest on my Rock Bottom Syndicate podcast, where she tells about her own story, caring for her dad and the difficult choices and rock bottoms that she dealt with in that uh, situation, which in the end all turned out very well. So I hope that you will enjoy this episode of The Totally Well Show. Thanks for coming. Hi, Beth. Thanks for coming on the Totally Well Show. It's really great to see you today. Hi, Joyce. Thank you so much for having me. I am um, so excited to learn about um, your uh, your work with helping people um, in the uh, the caregivers and in, in planning and um, uh, end of life experiences. And I have some people who are clients of mine in particular, there's one who really wants to meet you and learn more about this. And I think it's just such an important area that has been neglected. So, um, so tell me about what you do. Sure. So I help family caregivers, people like me, for example, who took care of my dad and entered into a medical crisis when he, you know, as he was an older adult, this was just several years ago now. And I help them manage the entire situation from a practical perspective, providing guidance and resources, and from an emotional perspective, because nobody's prepared for this. So I do that in a variety of ways with individuals through industry and uh, a little bit of work with the end users sort of being government and uh, legislators, that kind of thing. So on a variety of levels. Wow, that is very deep. All the different ways that you're that you're uh, touching the system. So, just for our listeners, Beth Sarath and can be found. Your website is um, Caregiving Pathways. Is that correct? Dot com. Caregivingpathways. Dot com. Yep. Um, and your site is beautiful. It really gives a lot of information. I know you have some resources on there, and a, a lot of information on how people. Can, can get started with or educated around this whole space. Right. So that's, it's such a broad sweep of what you just said, all the different ways that you're involved. <laughs> Do you have one area that you really have a, a greatest affinity for, for, for helping? Well, the very most rewarding is working one-to-one -one with people who are not prepared and once for a medical crisis like I had with my father, and when they have the support along the way and understand that this is a journey of sorts and um, all the things that go along with that whole experience, some, and that experience can be years long. And so helping people manage all that is the most rewarding for me. And, you know, the, the, the thanks, the hugs, the tears, that's the most rewarding thing. 
Yeah, that's really beautiful. I can imagine, you know, building a relationship and um, over time. And these things are, they're not really a surprise, right? It's not, you know, end of life is, it happens. And these, life happens. So being able to think ahead about it a little bit, um, or when it happens, have some support when you might not be thinking as clearly, um, could definitely, I could see, see a benefit there. Yeah, so my whole, my short version is plan and prepare or react and regret. And that applies to the two areas where I focus most, which is on the hospital stay and when the care plan becomes an end of life plan. So any preparation that you have for any of that, uh, for yourself, for your entire family, for the patient, for your loved one, will help when you're in a crisis mode and you have to make decisions, Mm -hmm. then you've already thought through some of it and you can make the decisions where if you haven't looked at any of it in any depth beforehand, you know, Oh, I'll think about that some other day. Then you get to the crisis and you have to do the thinking and the decision-making at the same time. And that's where a lot of people end up with a lot of regret because they didn't have time to think it through and make a decision that, you know, they would have if they'd had, if they'd taken that time. Yeah. And when you're talking about regrets, I'm imagining it's the quality of care. It's probably financial as well. Some of the decisions you make could have big impact on the family system. Sure. I mean, even in the hospital, you know, one of the lessons I learned the hard way is that just because you've made it past the emergency department doesn't mean that you're an admitted patient and that your insurance pays in a certain way. You could be under observation, which is a different status from the hospital and insurer's perspective. So there are a lot of details that, and and people don't really tell you this along the way. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, you know, I discovered it purely by accident once. So there's a lot to know. And if you do know, you can make some much better decisions that really does have long lasting financial impact. Wow. And just so the listeners will know, Beth is coming on my other podcast, Rock Bottom Syndicate, and she's going to tell you her story there. So we won't get into that on this because we're focusing more on what you're doing now to support people. But if you want to get into the background of um, the School of Hard Knocks um, in the Rock Bottom, <laughs> we're going to where I went. Yep. <laughs> so it's interesting to me because then first – glance, I'm thinking you're helping the person who's in crisis, so that has had a medical crisis or is approaching end of life just from age. Um, but it isn't just about that, right? You're talking about the caregivers and the family system as well. Is that correct? Yeah, actually, primarily. So I might focus is on, you know, the, the patient, the, the person who's undergoing the medical crisis or is approaching the end of life, Mm. All the attention is focused on that person. So I'm focused somewhat on that person, obviously, but primarily on the people around that person, the social support network, the family support, who are going through a trauma of their own, but it's not being addressed by anybody outside. And especially when you have an entire family, everyone's going through it together. They're not helping each other. They're just trying to cope day to day, each of them themselves. So it's a yeah. big challenge and for them to have somebody to support who's focused just on them. So can I tell you a quick story? Sure. Yeah. All right. So I was a volunteer for a couple of years in a family caregiving center 
in a hospital in New Jersey. It's one of 18 that are spreading throughout the nation. Started in a hospital in Westchester County, New York. And people come in, it's a dedicated space. It's beautifully lit and decorated. There are snacks and a social worker. and It's just for the family caregivers. And when you see people walk in, they are so tense and under stress and they, you know, they're focused on the patient. And when they walk in the door and you say to them, how are you doing? Let me get you a cup of coffee. Let's sit down. Would you like to talk or would you just like to sit quietly over here in this nice, quiet, private room and, you know, step back a little bit without even leaving the hospital? And you see the shoulders go down. You can practically see the blood pressure drop. <laughs> and people are so grateful. And they'll say over and over, nobody has ever asked me that, how I'm doing. Yeah. And so I've had people talk at, at length about their situations and even some people who were in a position where they couldn't take a spouse home and what were they going to do? And this was completely unexpected right then. Yeah. And so to have somebody who's focused just on them is an enormous gift. And it's so rewarding for me. Yeah. I imagine it could be helpful in any area through the lifespan because, I mean, there are times I've been in hospital um, as the support person, the caregiver or support person, where I've slept in the lobby without a blanket, on a hard couch or a chair or on the floor. Just, you know, there's no accommodation. And I can remember at a time where um, uh, I was feeling, you know, the, my, my relative was in crisis and I was just being swept away, like, get out of the way. You're, you know, you're not needed and more you're in the way and, or being called names, like you're crazy or neurotic or that kind of stuff. Oh dear. When you're in crisis. Yeah. I mean, these are healthcare people that are, you know, they just don't have the training or the understanding of rather than using bringing it all together and finding a way to, to make the system be a support rather than um, separating it all. So I could right. imagine more than just in end of life that it could be helpful. Yes. So, you know, several things are happening on that front. Family caregiving is now a national issue and, uh, and uh, legislation has been passed in 43 states and territories regarding supporting family caregivers in the hospital. So there's a, the time is here. So also recently I toured a hospital in Connecticut that was a brand new hospital completely redesigned around family care. And so that entails getting the staff used to pulling in the family and gaining the benefit of their knowledge about yes. the, the patient, right? So when my dad was there, you know, my dad had dementia, but he could fake it like nobody's business that he was perfectly fine. And he could be in dire pain and have 10 significant medical problems and tell you he was absolutely fine. And so the family can really provide such sort of wraparound understanding of the patient, their conditions, you know, all the things, uh, whether the patient is hard of hearing, for example. People assumed my, people who spoke with an accent of, to my father's viewpoint of any kind, uh, he could really not understand. He would sort of look at me. And so immediately the assumption was, oh, he's hard of hearing. And I said, no, no, he's not hard of hearing. He's just having trouble understanding you. And they're looking at me like, I'm speaking perfect English. What's the problem? I said, I understand that, but this is just how it is. And so I'll just sort of 
translate for you, even though it doesn't need translation. <laughs> so there's so much interaction that the uh, staff can get from the family caregiver that d- directly contributes to what the care plan will be. Yeah, that's really great. I'm thinking too that about the the times when um, caregivers. I've spoken to some who who've told me that they don't. They just kind of put one foot in front of the other. You know, they're they're frantically trying to help and make these decisions, and they're under stress. Maybe they've been uprooted from their typical routine work, location, all that. And they didn't see it coming, they say. They stress on themselves until it's too late. Um, have you seen that where people become themselves, become patients or suicidal or their own health suffers? Absolutely. And it's a classic uh, sort of syndrome, practically, that family caregivers will neglect their own health to ensure the good health of the person they love. And that's, that's just a byproduct of how much we love each other. Mm-hmm. So that also comes, so if you're physically unwell and you're stressed, um, you know, it's a, it's a snowball effect and it really can lead to some significant depression and it can sometimes lead to situations that you wouldn't normally encounter like elder neglect because people do have a threshold. And when all of the focus is on, the patient. And this can go on for years, 10 years, you could have somebody living with dementia in your home who can't be be left alone ever. And that's, you know, we're not designed to function that way. So definitely people need to be aware that stress is coming, whatever you use to deal with stress now, you know, in the good way, uh, you're going to need more of that, try to get that in place. Think about who your support network is, and this is the time to pull those people in to help before you get burned out because it, the, the stress is coming and it's going to be a lot. And if you know it's coming and you prepare to deal with it, it'll be much better. Yeah, I'm wondering how much we can get this education to people. Like now, you know, I'm in my 60s and I'm thinking, you know, I have children who I'm thinking, what will it be like when I get older and how much will they need to help me and the impact it will be? But we're not having that conversation now because I'm like going to the gym and I play hockey and, oh my gosh. you know, awesome. I do all these things now, but what things could change very quickly and but we're not primed for it, I guess, to have the conversation and they're difficult conversations. There, do you have thoughts on how to start to introduce? It's it's like with menopause, right? If the people who really need to listen to me talk about how to deal with menopause are the women in their mid thirties. <laughs> they don't want to. Exactly. They don't. They're not. They, they're still having babies then, you know. And they're not thinking about this is when they want to start implementing life changes because it's going to happen overnight. And then you know, but how do I get them to listen? How do I get people? in my age bracket to be talking about this? That is a challenge. And the interesting thing to me is that so many more people than you would ever imagine are actually involved in family caregiving at various levels. Mm -hmm. Uh, Really, I can remember only one occasion when I've explained to somebody what I do and only one time when somebody did not have a personal story. So people know it's there, it's lurking in the background, and the minute I start talking about it, the story comes pouring out. Um, So, But to get to people to prepare them is a definite culture shift. 
And there are grassroots efforts in many areas to get this up into the forefront. Uh, I personally have an, an end of life planning guide that I work with people uh, where they can sort through all of the, the things that go with the end of life. So let's say, for example, you have you know, your loved one is told he, he or she has you know, six months left to live, give or take, of, of good quality life. Shift of people's entire families, uh, you know, their focus in life really shifts at a point like that. So people want to figure out how to make the most of the time that's left. It needs to be meaningful for the person who's approaching the end of life. It needs to be meaningful for the others. What does meaningful mean to one versus another? Mm -hmm. How are they going to use that time? Do they want, does the person who's approaching the end of life want to make a, a legacy project of some sort? People want to, you know, people naturally think about how is my family going to remember me when I'm gone? And they can control that to some degree. They can create videos or write letters or make a scrapbook or take people on that one last trip while they're still feeling good. They can do lots of things. And interestingly, when you do get people who are younger to sort of start thinking about this, they often shift their whole focus for the rest of their lives, even though they think they may have 40 more years left. So when you really, like, if you look at life and you think, if I only had this much time, how would I live it? Yeah. You can just sort of extrapolate and move, you know, so when you're younger, apply that to how you live your life. It's very interesting to see that dynamic. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that. I've, I've seen a lot of people have a, a um, I don't know what they call it, but some type of a clock that shows you about how much time you have left or about oh, how really? many summers you have. Yeah, young people who... I've seen it like in the coaching world where people want to, um, they, they want to remind themselves every day, just, you know, are you wasting your time? Are you living the, the, your best life, your full potential? Um, and just being aware that we, none of us knows. And so um, having those conversations can be important, which brings me to another question of, this this is just because, like you say, the stories come pouring out, right? Because you were talking about it. But my <laughs> aunt passed away yesterday, and so oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. Thank you. And she's a very important member of our family. She's 92, and uh, she did some of this planning apparently because she wanted to be buried in 48 hours. So we're all like, oh, okay, <laughs> how do we do this? Um, and uh, you know, communicating with the family and uh, and honoring her. Uh, and so in the process of it, I'm a grandmother too. And I had a conversation uh, with my granddaughter who's six. And we, were, oh. we talked about the dog dying and going to heaven. And so now she's, as she's getting older, she had a lot of questions. And I just felt like I wanted to have a conversation with her about it because she's going to hear us talking. And I, I didn't want her. So her questions were, how does the body get up to heaven? Like, you know, because I, that's, I said, Auntie Bella went to heaven. So I was wondering about your opinion on uh, talking with young folks uh, that young about. Well, that, that is a very big challenge. And so many factors come into play. What your personal beliefs are, 
Uh, you know, I'm a grandmother also, so I have to take into account what my daughter's beliefs are in talking to her daughter. Yeah. And, you know, that's just a small little microcosm right there. And then magnify that by, you know, the Irish Catholic clan that I belong to and, yeah. the, you know, the fact that we live in the United States and, and how it's treated or not treated that way. Yeah. So it's so individual. It's hard to give any sort of um, perspective on that other than trying not to, you know, keeping it in the simplest terms and yeah. not providing too much information at once. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted it to be enough for me. And same thing with honoring my daughter and, and my son-in-law's um, practices. And, and I came when I came home, I, I told my son-in-law, my daughter was away, and I said, I just want to let you know that we had this little bit of conversation because we were talking in front of her. And, um, you know, I've, I'm a little sad today. This is why. But we're going to celebrate, you know, so we kept it really simple. But she had that one question is what happens? And I was like, you know, I, I really don't know. But here's how I think of it and kind of kept it like that. But I, I like that. I, like that. I like an answer like. I'm sorry. I like an answer like that where you say, I don't know. And because kids think that adults know everything. Yeah. But and, and so when a child doesn't know everything, they feel a gap there. But I think it's great to say, when you don't know, it's great to say, I don't know. Yeah, that's what I said. I don't know. I don't know if anybody knows because people can't tell us. But here's how I like to think about it. That makes me mm -hmm. feel better. So, yep. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. But I just felt good about having a conversation that it wasn't taboo to talk about it because it is part of, you know, we, we encounter. And so... I didn't want it to be, we can't talk about it. Right. And for something that so profoundly changes all of our lives, the fact that we don't talk about it makes the, the impact even more than, you know, on more than it needs to be. Yeah. Yeah. So we could, with open dialogue, have opportunity to do the planning and, um, and uh, use whatever, you know, the, the culture is in that family. I imagine some people would go to the humor side of things and someone <laughs> else, you know, might be more serious. Everyone has a different way of dealing with it. Yeah. And sometimes a humorous moment helps and sometimes a serious moment is in order. So, so are there other things I haven't asked you today about the way that you're, you know, you're, as you said, so involved on so many different levels that would be helpful for our listeners to know about um, the, caregiving? Well, let's see. I do have, I mentioned the end of life planning guide, and that's really helpful for people to use as they're doing their financial planning. Because so for me, having seen what my father went through, and he thought he had all of his legal documents in order and everything. And I discovered a, a lot of gaps. And so all of what I'm doing is a result of my experience with as a caregiver for my dad. Do you have um, the the um the guide that you could hold up to show people? Because I know you can uh, yes, I believe I do. Let me just see here. So this is the end of life planning guide. Mm -hmm. And that's totally um, free for people to get um their hands on to so it it come it, it's not downloadable on my website right now. I do have a couple of free downloads on my website. Uh, you can contact me for one of these, but um, on my website, I have this uh, guide to managing the hospital stay. Got it. Okay. And this has all the basics. I had one uh, person who 
a physician who works in a hospital say, oh, you can't possibly get all the basics down in one guide like that. And he looked at it and he said, actually, you really hit all the points here. Wow. So uh, it's great because it tells you about your role in the hospital. When I first landed in the hospital, when my dad first landed in the hospital, and I flew to Florida from New Jersey to be with him, I had no idea that I would have a role. I stood in the corner, tried to stay out of the way and be a visitor and smiled, you know, at dad. And so if somebody had handed me something like this right from the get-go, it would have put me a good two years ahead into five years of caregiving. And it would have made such a difference in how I, what I did and didn't do. Yeah. You really don't know your place. And then you may get you may get somebody who is new or not educated, or maybe that hospital just isn't, you know, up to snuff yet. And so you could become your own advocate and, you know, find the right way to say things, I imagine, to be able to, um, to be assertive or involved. Yep. It's an art and a science. (laughs) I love that. I love that. So anything else? Is there anything else in terms of the legislative end of things and how laws are changing or norms that people can get involved in that you know about? Sure. So I'm a consultant with AARP Public Policy Institute, and we're working on a a number of communications to a number of audiences about this entire topic. Mm -hmm. And uh, currently that will launch uh, in the next month or so. And currently on AARP, there are vast resources for family caregivers, in particular, a great set of videos that show family caregivers, not patients, but family caregivers, how to, for instance, manage wound care. Here's what you do, step-by-step process video. It really couldn't be better. And there are printed resource guides that go along with them. So uh, I definitely steer people to AARP.com. And there's a lot there. You have to kind of poke around and find things, but definitely uh, look for the videos and there will be more coming. So AARP was in, drove the adoption of the CARE Act in 43 states that requires hospitals to identify, to have patients have the opportunity to identify a family caregiver, have it entered into the electronic health record, and have that family caregiver prepared for the care that that person's going to be providing at home. People do go home quicker and sicker, and the medical slash nursing tasks we talk about in AARP world, uh, that people are expected to undertake, they're not prepared to do. And so, uh, you know, I urge people to, one of the first questions to ask uh, when you get into the hospital and sort of get the ball rolling is what will I need to do when I get home? How can I prepare now for what I'm going to need to do? Can I get prescriptions now, fill them while the person's, you know, before discharge happens, have everything ready at home so I don't have to run out to the store when I get home? Um, you know, so many things along that line. Wow. Very good. Um, anything else? Cause we're about out of time. So I was going to wrap up. I just want to make sure one more time people can reach you at caregivingpathways.com. I think all right. your information is on there. You're on LinkedIn, on Twitter. Yes. Facebook. Yep. Um, yes. Beth Seraf. And as I said, the hospital guide is a free download. There's another great free download about managing medications in the hospital, another art and science. 
And, uh, you know, I urge people to kind of take a look around, contact me if they want more information and look at those AARP resources. Very good. Well, Beth, thank you so much for coming on Totally Well and broadening my perspective on um, how to keep uh, all of us totally well, even through times of uh, trying times with crisis and and illness um, in our family, that we can be at our best to uh, be the best support and uh, advocate for our loved ones. Exactly. Thank you so much for having me today, Joyce. You're very welcome. And don't forget, come on to Rock Bottom Syndicate and hear Beth's story of her own uh, challenges. So um, I'm looking forward to that interview as well. Hey, everyone. Joyce Strong back again just to say thank you for tuning into the podcast. I want to remind you that you can visit me at TotalWellCoach.com, which links to all my social media and my offerings, my Inner Circle membership, which is a an entry-level way to get involved, get coaching, and get all my classes for one low monthly fee. And if you want more, work with me one-on-one with intensive nutrition and lifestyle so that you can opt out of chronic disease, then get in touch with me and we'll talk about how that happens. We spend a lot of time together. I want you to join the one-on-one coaching if you're really committed to making a lifestyle change and you want a guide and a support and a friend to walk with you in this journey. You're going to do the work. I'm going to support you. Um, you already have what you need inside you to make these changes. So do reach out to me at TotalWellCoach.com. I love it when you subscribe and share and comment on all my um, YouTube and on Apple Podcasts and all those places because it elevates my frequency and it gets more people to hear and see what I do. So please, 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 I really it means the world to me if you would help support me that way because you're helping support my entire network. I'm here for you if you need me. So thanks again for tuning into the podcast and reach out. Love to hear you. Love to get your comments. Love to get your DMs. Love to get your emails. Any way I can help, let me know. That's what I'm here to do. I love to serve. So thanks again. Mm-hmm.